Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Natalie. So we've been talking in recent weeks. We've been hearing from some of the justices uh, condemning the leak of Justice Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. We actually heard from another justice who has been fairly silent. That's because he's no longer sitting on the bench. That is retired Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, who uh, made a public appearance recently um, at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia to mark the 300th anniversary of the establishment of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And he, too, weighed in on um, the news of this leaked opinion, and he had some pretty strong words. Do tell, what strong words did he have? He said, this leak was a cowardly, corrupt, and contemptuous act. Every court in this country must take this moment to recommit itself to the idea of absolute judicial independence and integrity in its deliberations. There must be a commitment to thoughtful and respectful discourse. So I guess he's kind of using this as an opportunity to remind courts that they have to maintain their independence and not be you know, threatened by outside political factors. Probably unsurprising, but it is notable that he, you know, is, is a retired justice and he's weighing in on this very live um, contemporary political issue. You know, Natalie, I wrote a story recently um, this week about basically just kind of the gap I'm hearing in some of the public discourse surrounding the the leak when it comes to the justices themselves and actually, you know, what it means for their legitimacy. And I, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but basically I talked to a number of experts who said that, you know, the actual institution and its legitimacy in the eyes of the public has far more to do with the actual substance of the leak itself than any breach in confidences. And I and I think you're already starting to see that kind of the temperature has has dropped, I guess, in recent days. I don't know, Natalie, would you agree in, in terms of, you know, ge- the, sh- the general news cycle, it seems like the broader public has kind of moved beyond the actual you know, the breach itself, the confidentiality breach, and is really more focused on, you know, what it means for reproductive rights in this country. And I think, you know, a a couple people I spoke to was basically like, look, when we get this ruling in the Dobbs case, you're really not going to hear basically any more other than from like, you know, court watchers like you and me about the leak itself. Instead, the conversation is going to be entirely about, you know, the, the the ruling and what it means for abortion access. So I don't want to go too much farther into that other than to say that um, there is this idea that, you know, this leak itself is doing the greatest damage to the institution that's been, you know, uh, pushed by the likes of, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas, whereas I think you see a number of political scientists and commentators point out, actually, you know, the public has a lot more care about the substance and the underlying leak of the underlying leak itself. So I guess that's the last I'll say on that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, that's not entirely unexpected, right? Um, And yes, we've heard, we've already seen state lawmakers um, start making moves to address this, you know, upcoming expected opinion on both sides of the political divide. I know I've heard about lawyers and legal aid groups who are already kind of gearing up um, in advance of changes uh, to, you know, litigation that they're going to be expecting after this comes down. Um, So, you know, look, everyone's kind of focused in on the impact it has for 
their personal or professional interests, right? And for the Supreme Court, though, that's the institution. That's, you know, right. what the, you know, the the kind of uh, processes that it has and, and, and the image it is attempting to preserve um, amid this fallout, fall, the fallout from this leak. Um, so, you know, I, it is an yeah. interesting divide of like the attention, but I, I don't think it's entirely unexpected. There was an interesting uh, report in the Associated Press just about kind of diving into the background of the new marshal of the Supreme Court, Gail Curley, who's going to be leading this investigation. And it goes into her former service in the armed forces as a former army colonel and also military lawyer and spoke to a number of her former colleagues just about kind of her her very unshakable uh, manner. And so it, it seems like there's a lot of confidence in people who, who she used to work with in her ability to carry out and oversee this investigation and to find who the leaker actually was. But I think that's probably about all we should say about um, the Dobbs case. We obviously don't have an opinion yet. Uh, we had opinions on Monday, um, and there were two pretty interesting ones that we're going to get into in a bit. Of course, there are lots more um, coming down the pike um, as of yet, as we record here on Wednesday afternoon. The Supreme Court has not yet scheduled um, any opinion days for the following week. Um, it has a Thursday conference tomorrow that in which they'll probably say when the next opinion day will be. But as of yet, we've just got these two rulings from Monday, as I said, and they're pretty interesting. So why don't we take them in turn? Natalie, you're going to talk about um, a, a fascinating case that involves, you know, access to justice issues in the criminal case of Shin versus Ramirez. That's right. On Monday, um, the court said in this pair of cases uh, involving two Arizona death row inmates that they could not present evidence in federal court that they say proves they provi were provided with ineffective trial counsel. Um, the court said federal law, specifically the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, blocks the prisoners from introducing new evidence at this stage of their habeas corpus petitions in federal court, and they must rely solely on what's in the state court record. Um, this decision, which was a six to three vote with the majority opinion written by Justice Thomas, deals a significant blow to these two particular inmates, uh, David Martinez Ramirez and Barry Lee Jones, but also for many others on death row, because it basically closes up an important avenue for bringing up ineffective counsel claims past a certain stage in their case proceedings. Um, the decision also significantly narrows the impact of a 2012 Supreme Court ruling um, known as Martinez versus Ryan that had allowed ineffective counsel claims to be heard in federal court despite this federal law. This one seems like it's it's pretty complicated when it comes to the, the procedural aspects of it as so many death penalty cases and uh, criminal cases are, but the ruling instantly made waves in the criminal justice community for kind of closing the avenue of bringing these types of ineffective assistance of counsel claims after a conviction, um, especially when it comes to post-conviction counsel. So let's take a step back, and can you explain the federal law at the center of this EDPA, I think it's called, and that Martinez ruling and how this ruling kind of intersects with those? Sure. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, this is kind of, I think, an 
easy to understand impact, but how we get here is a little complicated. Um, So EDPA was passed on the heels of the Oklahoma City bombing. And essentially what I think is, is important to know is that it limited when state court defendants could seek relief in federal court. Um, and it created this really high bar for requesting an evidentiary hearing through the habeas corpus process where prisoners can ask a federal court to release them or order a new trial based on a constitutional basis. And in this case, ineffective counsel has been deemed one of these ways. Right. Um, the Basically, Martin- you know, your fair, your right to a fair trial under the, the Sixth Amendment, right? Exactly. Exactly. So the Martinez ruling kind of, I want to say, cemented that constitutional avenue for federal review. It, it, you know, it's it's often I think referred to as a gateway ruling, um, according to, to reporting from our senior reporter Marco Poyo, who, and you know, it opened up a path for prisoners to challenge their state imprisonment in federal court. It's specifically the court in that case in 2012 said, you know, it didn't matter what a state allowed an effective counsel claims to be raised at like the appellate level or in a secondary proceeding. Defendants have a right to bring that type of claim before a federal court. Um, Now we're coming to this case here in 2022. um, And an issue is, you know, whether defendants can produce new evidence during the federal habeas corpus proceedings to support that claim. And basically, Monday's opinion essentially says, yeah, you can make the claim, but you can't add new evidence, right? Um, And it puts this, the onus on the defendants making sure that their ineffective counsel claims are developed in the state record. So let me just see if I got this right, Natalie, because this this one is kind of a complicated case. Um, You know, the the stakes are high, but uh, to get there, there's a lot of process. So if, if I'm understanding what happened here correctly, you know, these capital defendants brought their original ineffective assistance claims in federal court under a habeas petition under EDPA, right? And those claims were originally denied. Um, and so then they come back and make the argument that the reason that they were denied and the reason that those original ineffective claims were denied was because their post-conviction counsel were also ineffective. So we originally had bad lawyers in the first trial against our con- constitutional rights. And then the lawyers that we were supposed to have to point that out to the federal court were also bad because they procedurally defaulted on that case. And then I, I think when I kind of read the summary of the, the syllabus here, and it's kind of complicated, um, in order to bolster those claims about the post-conviction counsel, that is the lawyers that were supposed to make that original argument that the original lawyers were bad, they introduced new evidence beyond the state court trial record in what Justice Thomas said was basically an overstep of the federal habeas court's authority under EDPA. You have that exactly right. Okay, (laughs) You got it right. Um, So yeah, basically, look, they're like, we had bad lawyers in the beginning, and then we had ineffective counsel again when we were trying to, you know, do post-conviction hearings. Um, And, you know, this is why we should be allowed to put forth new information, new evidence. And the Ninth Circuit agreed with both of them. So I can say, look, both Jones and Ramirez were convicted of murder. Um, in Jones's case, um, though, there has been new evidence that has come up um, that pa- casts serious doubt as to the timeline of and, and the theory of the state's case against him. Um, 
And what he's arguing is that his first initial attorney did not do a thorough investigation to find those facts. Um, and also, though, that his post-conviction attorney was also deficient because he didn't bring up the ineffectiveness of that first attorney. Um, you know, and, and, and in Ramirez's case, uh, his attorneys have argued that his earlier attorney at sentencing failed to raise a claim that he is intellectually disabled, um, which would make him ineligible for the death penalty. Um, and again, that there should be evidence be, you know, be able to be introduced here to to make that claim. Yeah, you can obviously see that there are immediate impacts on, you know, both Jones and Ramirez's case. And I was struck kind of reading Justice Thomas's opinion um, that it, it's it's it part of it is coalesced around the idea that, you know, f this federal habeas mechanism, the idea that federal courts can review the capital cases of death row inmates that are convicted of state capital crimes that should be, in Thomas's view, a very narrow mechanism, only reserved for like certain egregious cases, and that it shouldn't actually provide a window for the um, federal court to kind of pry open the case and introduce new evidence, especially when it comes to a thing like ineffective assistance of post-conviction counsel. But obviously, there were three dissenters here. So what can you tell us about what the dissenting uh, justices had to say? Yeah, so the sentencing justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor um, basically said the court's ignoring the precedent set in Martinez and in a subsequent case that was um, heard and decided a year later known as Trevino, and that this decision upsets the balance between states' interests and the constitutional rights of criminal defendants. Essentially, they're saying, you know, look, the constitutional right to a fair trial should outweigh the state interests to put a button on, on these proceedings. Certainly a tension that we see often between, you know, upholding constitutional rights and also finality in these criminal cases uh, comes up again and again. Let's kind of change gears here and move on to the other decision that was handed out on Monday. Uh, totally different. Um, Morgan versus Sundance Incorporated. This is on arbitration case. It was a pretty interesting one. Um, so this was, I would call it like a rare unanimous ruling against arbitration. Um, in, in the case, because you, you typically see when there is a ruling in an arbitration case on this court in recent years, they've either been, you know, unanimous rulings in favor of arbitration or, or maybe five to four or six to three rulings in favor of arbitration. This one actually didn't come out that way. So in it, the court held that courts should not require plaintiffs to show that they were prejudiced or unfairly positioned um, in a case before finding that a defendant waived their right to arbitration. So we're going to kind of unpack that later on. But basically, writing the opinion, Justice Elena Kagan said that courts shouldn't create special rules favoring arbitration that don't apply to other contractual terms. So this is actually a pretty big deal for litigants trying to overcome arbitration agreements in cases where maybe they're suing over wage violations or consumer products or etc. There's a, there's a number of cases in which these arbitration agreements come up. Okay, so before we get into the technicalities, can you break down the background of this case? So this was a lawsuit uh, from a former Taco Bell employee named Robin Morgan. Uh, she basically sued the franchisee of that particular Taco Bell location where she worked, which was called Sundance Incorporated. Uh, this was in 2018 when she files the lawsuit over alleged wage and hour violations under the Fair Labor Standards Act, alleging that, you know, she was 
not pay the overtime that she was due. So Sundance attempts to kind of mediate the dispute, um, but after that doesn't go anywhere, uh, they file a motion to compel arbitration the following year. Uh, This is in 2019, a year after the lawsuit was filed. So Morgan, she argues, and the district court actually agrees with her, that Sundance had waived its right to arbitration by participating in the litigation first. So basically saying that there was a delay and that by virtue of the fact that they were you know, defending the case in court, that they could no longer enforce the arbitration agreement. But on appeal, the Eighth Circuit says that Morgan hadn't shown how she was prejudiced. So this is the legal term of art that basically means you're unfairly positioned or harmed in a case by dint of the, the other party's behavior. So the Court of Appeal says, she, she didn't show that she was prejudiced by Sundance's delay in exercising arbitration and reverses the district court's ruling. And in so doing, the appeals court deepens the circuit split on whether such a showing, you know, prejudice, is required before finding waiver, finding that the defendant had waived its basically its right to arbitrate. So what did the Supreme Court say this week? So Justice Kagan has the opinion for a unanimous court, and she says that this prejudice requirement is found nowhere else in waiver cases in federal courts. I mean, these are basically contractual disputes, whether a specific contractual term has been waived is, I guess, in in, in Kagan's view, a matter of uniform policy basically across all federal courts and that there are standards to uphold and in no other circumstance beyond these arbitration agreements in the Eighth Circuit and others, did courts require there to be the specific showing from a plaintiff that they were prejudiced before finding that the defendant had waived their right um, to whatever contractual term that they are talking about. So she writes, a court must hold a party to its arbitration contract just as the court would to any other kind, but a court may not devise novel rules to favor arbitration over litigation. The federal policy is about treating arbitration contracts like all others, not about fostering arbitration. So how big an impact does this ruling have? What's the significance? So I think the most kind of straightforward effect of this ruling is that it's going to be hard for companies to compel arbitration after they're participating in these lawsuits, right? So if they're if they're responding to complaints in federal court and defending against a lawsuit for like, let's say a year, let's say more, it's going to be really hard for them to turn around and then try to exercise or compel arbitration, you know, uh, uh, by dint of a arbitration clause that's that's been in like an employee's contract or maybe it's a consumer product agreement, what have you. So I suspect what you're going to see now going forward is that these companies that are facing these lawsuits, whether they're for you know overtime violations or whether they're defective products or what what have you, whatever the dispute might be. They're going to try and bounce these cases out of the court system immediately because obviously participating in the cases for a while is going to be risky because you know there's no longer this prejudicial requirement on the part of plaintiffs that that makes it basically harder to find that these arbitration wa- uh, these arbitration agreements have been waived. Um, so so Law 360 ran an interesting story about this from from one of our reporters, Max Kuttner, and attorneys told him that defendants sometimes you know. It used to do just that. They used to sit on arbitrations uh, agreements to see how litigation would play out in court. 
maybe even until plaintiffs like used up a lot of their own resources before actually trying to compel arbitration and bounce the cases out of court. So now with this requirement gone, that's going to be a riskier strategy. Uh, so I guess you know there is some kind of debate whether or not you know this specifically this case specifically applies to this kind of narrow issue maybe around waivers and whether it might actually rear its head in other arbitration disputes. So I was kind of chatting with uh, Carolyn Shapiro, a, a former guest of the show, about you know what was the significance of this ruling, and she basically said that the language that that Justice Kagan uses in that you know basically courts should not be carving out these arbitration specific rules that favor arbitration above other contractual provisions could in fact be a kind of a broad principle that could basically be used in other cases beyond just an issue of waiver i mean you could have an issue about uh, a contractual terms unconscionability that's a that's a doctrine in, doctrine in contract law and um, you know some courts apply different standards to arbitration versus other contractual terms and so the thinking is that possibly you could you could see this ruling be relied upon by plaintiffs in other cases to challenge a court's special treatment or special favoring of arbitration going forward. Now, you know, this is basically the ink is hardly dried on this opinion, and it's hard to say exactly what that's going to be like, but we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on it going forward. Yeah, I find that one so fascinating. And I'm because arbitration agreements are just such a large part of our world and the business world now, um, it'll be really interesting to see if this does get kind of that broader treatment and if there are more cases kind of waiting in the wings to to broaden it further. So stay tuned. Um, maybe something in the shadow docket, which I know is up next for us to talk about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we've had some, we've had a few shadow docket cases over the past couple of weeks. Um, uh, there's been a number of them pending recently. I, th I think we're just going to focus on one here that is probably the main one. And that is the ca a case called Net Choice versus Paxton. So basically, Natalie, I don't know how closely you've been following this, but Texas has passed this law. It's called HB 20, and it's the kind of social media viewpoint discrimination law. And what the law says is that you know, these internet, social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc., can't engage in viewpoint discrimination or what, what lawmakers consider to be censoring content. This kind of is part of this whole cultural uh, debate that's been going on about, you know, certain platforms potentially censoring or shielding conservative voices, what have you. And so Republicans have gotten behind this legislative effort in Texas to try and basically treat these internet companies like you know, like they would, you know, the modern public square where you can't actually discriminate against people based on their political views. Now, NetChoice and another group called the Computer and Communications Industry Association, these are two trade groups representing, you know, a lot of the big internet companies. They filed a lawsuit challenging this under the First Amendment because, you know, their, their, their members are private entities who they say should not be subject to these types of restrictions on their basically what what speech they can and cannot allow on their platforms and they actually won a, a preliminary injunction against the law in federal court as a violation of their members first amendment rights as private entities but and here's how we got to the supreme court the fifth circuit stayed that ruling okay so they're at the supreme court what's been happening with the case 
Yeah, so, I mean, it was around 12 days ago when NetChoice files this emergency application to lift the Fifth Circuit stay. What that would mean would be reinstating this district court's original injunction against the law. And uh, NetChoice and, and the Computer Industry Association, which are being represented by Supreme Court heavyweight Paul Clement, among others, says that HB 20 would, quote, compel platforms to disseminate all sorts of objectionable viewpoints, such as Russia's propaganda claiming that its invasion of Ukraine is justified, ISIS propaganda claiming that extremism is warranted, neo-Nazi or KKK screeds denying or supporting the Holocaust and encouraging children to engage in risky or unhealthy behavior like eating disorders. So they say basically that these social media companies are not government entities, and as private entities, they should be able to regulate their platforms in the way that they see fit and get rid of all sorts of, as they call them, objectionable viewpoints that basically, um, you know, uh, degrade the, the, the service that they are providing, i.e. Pr- providing this platform to the, to the public. And indeed, earlier this week, a panel of Republican appointees on the 11th Circuit struck down major provisions of a similar law that was passed in Florida. So, net choice, you had them go back to the Supreme Court, file a, a brief of what they call supplemental authority, basically pointing to this 11th Circuit ruling and say, hey, look, you know, the Court of Appeals in this case agreed with us. So now you definitely have to act on this. And that could possibly be why it's taken so long. Maybe the Supreme Court was kind of waiting to see what would happen with this 11th Circuit case. But as of yet, we have not gotten any action from the court. We do have Texas's Attorney General, Ken Paxton. He says that the law doesn't violate the First Amendment. He likens the social media platforms, as I said, to the modern public square. He says that, quote, the hosting rule regulates conduct, not speech, and specifically the platform's discriminatory refusal to provide or discriminatory reduction of service to classes of customers based on viewpoint. So that's kind of the dispute in a nutshell. This is a shadow docket case. Um, And usually they're, I would say, probably, I don't know, decided on a on a shorter timeline than the one we've been seeing in this case, usually get some kind of answer for the court one way or the other. Um, and it, it's at this point, it's hard to say when a ruling will come out. I suspect maybe justices are behind the scenes writing opinions on this one, or I don't know, maybe they'll do what they do in some other cases where they're like, let's move this one over to the merits docket. Cause there's a lot of like big issues about, you know, the scope of the first amendment, et cetera. But this is one that, a lot of court watchers are keeping a close eye on because, it, yeah, it could have pretty big implications for a lot of these social media companies, which is obviously where so much of our modern communication takes place. And for our listeners, we should know we're actually recording on Wednesday today, um, and our episode will be released uh, tomorrow, Thursday, uh, as, as per usual. So it's always possible that we'll be getting that ruling um, anytime between now and when you hear this, essentially. That's right. And there will be the justices conference on Thursday, um, which could potentially spur some more action in the case. I think I mentioned earlier in the show as well that it's typically on conference days when the court announces the date of the next opinion day. Um, I suspect uh, it'll probably be early next week, but you know that's just speculation. It does seem like the court has quite a bit of work to kind of get, a, get off its desk before they kind of gavel out for the summer recess, right? Yeah, that's right. And we'll be waiting for those to to come on down. Um, But for now, Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us this week. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. 
We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporters, Marco Poggio and Max Kuttner. Music for the show comes from Sender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.